The storm will be magnificent. All the electrical secrets of heaven. And this time we're ready. Hey, Fritz. Ready? No. Why? What is it, Fritz? Because I'd rather listen to Monster Kid Radio. You have created the podcast, and it will destroy you. Hello, this is Jack Griffin, the Invisible Man. When I'm not gathering nuts in May, I'm listening to Monster Kid Radio. And you should too, you fools. <laughs> How do you like that, hey? Hello and welcome to episode 330 of Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, and right off the bat, big thanks to Michael Leggy, aka the horror host, Dr. Dreck, for providing that bit of audio that I used to open the show. I think I'm going to turn that into a promo that I'm going to make available to other podcasts if they want to run a promo for Monster Kid Radio. I want to use that. Dr. Drek, you're the man. Thanks for sending that in. Listeners, check out Dr. Drek. You can find him on Facebook. You can find him on YouTube. And when you find him, tell him that Monster Kid Radio said hello, although he's probably listening himself right now. All right, this week on Monster Kid Radio, I'm going back in time. I'm going back to the Monster Bash. You know, I've got so much more audio content from Monster Bash. I'm going to spread it out over the next several months. Well, this time around, we're going back to a presentation by my friend Frank J. Dello Strito. Now, Frank is an author. He is the man behind Cult Movies Press. You can find him at cultmoviespress.com. He just released a book called The Werewolf Remembers, The Testament of Lawrence Stewart Talbot. It's an excellent book. And I'm going to give you a sneak peek, a spoiler, a look into the future right now. This book will be on the 2017 Monster Kid Radio Holiday Gift Guide. It is that good. Go check it out. When you're done listening to Frank talk about the movie, The Return of the Vampire. This is a movie that does not get all of the respect and appreciation that it deserves. If you haven't seen the movie already, heads up, we're going to spoil it. If you have seen the movie already, well, you know what Frank's talking about. Now, Frank did a presentation at Monster Bash, got up on stage, and he actually contacted me before the bash and said, you know what, I would love to be able to make this available on your podcast. And I set up my recorder, everything was good to go, but something happened to the sound system in the room at the time, and I was really bummed. It, it wasn't going to work. And I told Frank what happened, and without missing a beat, he says, well, why don't I just come up to your room and record it there? So he did. So that's what you've got. It's a relatively clean audio version of the presentation. Now, when he did it in front of everybody at Monster Bash, it was a slideshow that went along with it. But I think the way we did it here, I think it's going to work just fine as an audio piece. And then after that, I'm going to give you some more audio from Monster Bash. Sunday, Scott Morris and I were just hanging out after dinner, and I shoved the recorder in his face. So you're going to get to hear that as well, in which I asked him what he thought of the film The Return of the Vampire, because he had never seen it. He'd also never seen the movie How to Make a Monster. He's going to talk a little bit about that as well. And we talk a little bit about the bash. And because I wanted to sound a little bit more, we're just kind of hanging out in the hotel room. I didn't edit it too much. So you're going to hear an interruption and us just kind of ramble a little bit. It's fun. So you're going to get that. But before all that, we've got some voicemails about last week's episode in which we talked about the movie The Land Unknown. Hi, Derek. This is Tim Durbin. Wanted to call in to tell you how much I enjoyed your podcast on The Land Unknown. That's always been a favorite dinosaur film of mine, and have felt the critics' reviews of it online have always been, well, overly harsh. So I was glad to hear you and Joe giving it some much-needed love. 
I actually just watched it again last night and put up a blog post today. I think in particular, the design of the T-Rex and the Plesiosaur, they're just so imposing. They must have looked incredible on the big screen. Uh, I hope I get the opportunity to see it um, at a theater someday. I also thought it was interesting, the, the Wikipedia article on the movie quotes an interview with actor William Reynolds in which he said they spent so much money on the T-Rex they had to abandon the original plan to film the movie in color. Just a nice little anecdote there. Well, thanks for all the great work you do, and I'll look forward to the next episode. Hi, Derek. This is Steve Turk from Maryland. Uh, first, I hope you're feeling better, and I'm glad to hear that you got your podcast um with the land, the land unknown on that was great. I just watched the movie, and then after the movie, I listened to your podcast, and it was just a great double feature to do. I've never seen the land unknown, so I probably wouldn't have seen it if you guys wouldn't have been doing a podcast on it. And I enjoyed it very much. I mean, obviously the the suit of the Tyrannosaurus Rex could have been better, but considering it was 1957 and the budget they had. It did the job. It it was fun to watch. I enjoyed it. I actually was kind of surprised that nobody died also. It was, I was kind of thinking, oh, somebody's going to die, especially when the one character, I think his name was also Steve, mentioned about how, oh, his wife's going to have their baby, he's going to have to be a father in June. And that's usually the telltale sign, oh, somebody on the crew, not one of the main characters, they're going to have a child or they already have a small child. They almost always are going to bite it somewhere in the movie. So I thought for sure he was doomed to die, and he didn't. I thought he was going to be killed by Hunter when they did the one scene fighting in the cave. And then I thought, oh, he'll fix the helicopter and the T-Rex will get him in the end. And that didn't happen. I was just kind of, it was kind of shocking. I was like, wow, the guy lived. And then Hunter, as you guys were saying in the uh, podcast, I thought that Hunter was going to die a couple times. Um, one, I thought he was going to bite it with the dinosaur, especially when he got hit by the, the, the fin or flipper or whatever that thing was. And I thought he died in the river. And then, as you guys are thinking, I kept as they were getting closer to the ships, I kept thinking, he's going to jump from the helicopter. He just doesn't want to go back to civilization. And he didn't die there. And then when the helicopter crashed, I thought, oh, maybe he'll bite it there. And he still didn't. So it was kind of surprising that there was, you know, no deaths. And um, I just enjoyed it very much. And as you guys said, I think your guest, um, Joe, said he would love to have seen this one in color. From what I read, it was originally supposed to be in color, but they used up so much money on the um, dinosaurs that they didn't have any money left over to do it except in black and white. And um, so that's why it was so originally was going to be in color, but that had to get mixed due to cost. I'm looking forward to your future podcast and um hoping that we can get together one that one day soon to do that podcast you were talking to me about, so especially since October 4th is coming up soon. All right. Hope you keep feeling better. Talk to you later. Bye. Tim Durbin was on the show back in June for episode 323, in which we talked about the movie The Most Dangerous Game. And it was a great conversation. You can find him at his website, Viewing the Classics, at viewingtheclassics.blogspot.com. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to the review that he wrote of The Land Unknown. And I'm glad he enjoyed it. I'm also glad that Steve Turek enjoyed it as well. And I don't think you've heard Steve on the show. Maybe you have, because I did record a couple of sessions of the Classic Five with him at Monster Bash. And if you haven't already heard him, you'll hear him in the future. 
And we've got some things in the works as well. I'm going to have him on the show for a special episode in October. I don't think I'm going to spoil what that is yet, but it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to that as well. And, you know, really, that's a big part of the reason why I do Monster Kid Radio is getting movies that maybe don't have the attention or the appreciation as the classics. So where I say at the top of the show that we're devoted to the not-so-classic genre cinema as well as the classic because there's so much out there that doesn't get the appreciation or, or the notice. And The Land Unknown, I think, deserves a lot more attention. I know that a lot of people were talking about it on Facebook as well, and I appreciate that. We do have a Facebook page and a Facebook group where that was happening. In fact, in the Monster Kid Radio group, Joseph Schultz posted a couple of pictures from the behind-the-scenes of the movie The Land Unknown. Known. There is a picture that he posted showing Chris Mueller Jr. sculpting the T Rex. And then there's also a photo of a kid staring at a maquette of the T Rex from the Land Unknown. And over his shoulder is the Metaluna Mutant, which is really cool. There's also a shot here uh, of just the making of the movie. It's cool. I don't know where he got the photos, but I appreciate him posting them in the Facebook group. I'm glad that everybody seemed to enjoy the conversation of The Land Unknown. I had a lot of fun with it. All right, let's get to The Return of the Vampire. Let's get to Frank. After that, we'll get to Scott. We'll get to How to Make a Monster and a handful of other things. Let's do that right after this. Reacher of Evil. Running amok, blazing a trail of fear-crazed horror. From the jungle's most guarded secret comes this amazing story of a captive wild woman, torn between the mad cravings of animal blood and the longing for human love. A woman whose jungle instincts give her sinister power over man and beast. And suppose your experiment does succeed. What will you have? A human form with animal instincts. You know what the priests do to if they catch you? No, of course you don't. They put you on trial. Then they'll put you in the electric chair and kill you. Interstellar explorers must fight an unstoppable alien fiend from beyond space, hell-bent on consuming them all. Will they survive? Can they survive? And on the same program, a man must fight to save his only child from the clutches of strange invaders who use their advanced technologies to steal sleeping children through their bedroom walls. Are your children safe? Two terrors to tear you apart in the late night double feature. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. 
In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Of the hour is Return of the Vampire, 1943 Columbia Pictures, in which Lady Jane Ainsley confronts Armand Tesla Vampire, and a battleground for their duel is the soul of Andreas Obrey, who at Tesla's behest becomes a werewolf. This may be the first talk ever given on this movie because the movie has been largely overlooked. It was never part of the popular horror anthologies like Creature Features, Chiller Theater, and certainly not Shock Theater because it wasn't universal. And it has been mentioned in the magazines, but fine magazines like uh, Monsters from the Vault and Monster Bash magazine have run stills from it occasionally, but have never done an article on it. I saw the movie a handful of times in the early 60s when it popped up on Saturday afternoon television in the New York area. Then it kind of disappeared. Not until 30 years later when the VHS came out with no fanfare at all did I see it again. And then it disappeared again until the DVD came out uh, a few years ago. So it's been largely an overlooked movie, which is incredible. A Bela Lugosi vampire movie has actually been overlooked, but uh, that's the way it is. But I think you'll find in in what I'm going to talk about that there's plenty of history around the film and interest within the film to make it worth your hour. I'm going to be talking about some of the earlier vampire movies of the era, so I'll just go through those to get us on the same page. The early 1930s saw six vampire movies, Dracula, uh, the Danish-made film Vampire, Vampire Bat, Mark of the Vampire, Condemned to Live, and Dracula's Daughter. Uh, You can argue, should other movies be included, so other movies kicked out, but we are basically talking about a half dozen movies in the early 30s. Uh, After 1936, there was a virtual ban on horror movies, so no, no monsters appeared. Uh, The monsters came roaring back in 1939, but vampires didn't come with them. From 1939 till 1943, early 1943, there were no vampire movies. So the two or three year ban of of monster movies, Frankenstein, etc., was actually a six to seven year ban for vampire movies. During the 1939 through 43, Frankenstein's monster made three appearances. Karis the Mummy made two appearances. The Wolfman made two appearances, but no vampires. Vampires last came back to the screen in 1943, and from 1943 to 45, there were six vampire movies, Dead Men Walk, Son of Dracula, today's movie Return of the Vampire, House of Frankenstein, The Vampire's Ghost, and House of Dracula. Why did vampires need four years more to come back? Well, vampires are the only monster that have a physical intimacy with their victims, and that leads filmmakers, even of modest films like these, into areas that are best avoided when the censors are watching you. For example, Dead Men Walk, the most modest of the mid-40s films. If you listen carefully, the vampire's victim is either his niece or his daughter. They're not too explicit about that, but in the script, that's the way it is. It's a tale of incest. Son of Dracula... Catherine Caldwell is uh, the prime mover. She arranges her for her fiancé, who, by the way, is Count Dracula, to dispose of her father. Then she disposes of him. She's plotting to get rid of her sister, and it's only stopped because her new fiancé does away with her. This is a tale of a family destroyed from within. It's a 1943 film. 
about this time, Tennessee Williams was starting his career as a writer. And since Son of Dracula was in the American South, I like to think that he saw the movie, said, gee, I can do all this, but I don't need the vampires. And The Glass Menagerie came out in 1944. Vampire's Ghost is the first and maybe still the only vampire movie where a white vampire is feeding on black victims. Vampire's Ghost takes place in Africa. He does take white victims, but they're kind of special cases. People he particularly wants are people that get in his way. But his basic feeding stock are the native blacks. And it's the native blacks who who destroy him, not the know-it-all whites. Return of the Vampire doesn't quite get into such areas except for one scene. You will have to look long and hard at 1930s and 40s movies to see the naked terror of a child as portrayed when the vampire enters the bedroom of seven-year-old Nikki Saunders. She gives a scream and she dives under the covers and it is really effective. This may be the first horror movie that makes use of a child's terror. Until then, children were usually used to show the human side of the monster as in the Frankenstein films and the golem going way back. They didn't get into terrified children. Even since then, horror movies have made sparing use of a child's terror, such as such films as Them and Aliens, but it's something filmmakers wisely keep away from. It's an easy way to unsettle the audience. This moment of Nikki Saunders' terror actually had some publicity. In the publicity release uh, entitled Even Film Vampire Isn't Easy to Face, and I won't read it, but it, it ends with, I knew what was coming, Shirley said, but for a second I forgot it wasn't real. I got under the covers fast. And the cameras were grinding, and the take was perfect. Uh, indeed, it was. And uh, all I know about Shirley Collier is that she had a, a brief career. Uh, she died at age 35, three months after her mother. Apparently never left her mother's home. And that, unfortunately, that is the symptoms that we often see in a child actress's life. Uh, some of Armand Tesla, the vampire's immortality, may have rubbed off on his young victim. The prologue of the movie takes place in 1918, during the uh, end of the of World War I, and young Nikki Saunders is played by seven-year-old Shirley Collier. The main body of the movie is 1941, shortly after the outbreak of World War II, and Nikki Saunders should now be in her 30s. It's 23 years later, but she's actually played by a 19-year-old Nina Foch. And uh, I have nothing against 30-year-olds, but horror movies like their heroines young. And Nina Foch, by the way, is not the youngest of the, of the 1940s horror heroines. That's not the, the big problem the movie has with chronology. Let's talk about the age of the vampire. Uh, this slide shows uh, Armand Tesla from six different scenes in the movie. And decide how old you think he is. There. Well, he is masquerading as Hugo Bruckner, a refugee from Nazi Europe, but Scotland Yard has their eye on him. And Sir Frederick Fleet, the commissioner of Scotland Yard, tells Lady Ainsley about her guest. He goes, Bruckner, Hugo, age 62, bald, heavily built, and walks with a limp. There's your real Bruckner. And all Lady Jane Ainsley can say is 62? Well... Bela Lugosi at the time was 61. He could easily pass for 62. I remember when I saw this movie, I was 11, 12 years old maybe, and I was so confused by her surprise because he looked 62 to me. My grandfather was then 62. Why was she so surprised at that? Was there some change made in during the filming that changed the vampire's appearance? If we look deeper into the age of the vampire, the plot thickens. 
Uh, there's a scene when Lady Jane goes to a cemetery, hoping to find Armand Tesla's uh, body, which was staked in 1918, but of course he has escaped. He has, as the movie promises, returned. And she asks the reinterment team, do you remember seeing one of an old man, a very old man, with a spike in his heart? Well, we have seen the old man with a spike in his heart, but if we look closely at that, it's not an old man at all. So the movie is, is, has inconsistencies with age which just aren't resolved. But its biggest inconsistency is centered around Lady Jane. Lady Jane in 1918, during the prologue, is one of them that stakes the vampire, and she clearly looks in the coffin. We don't get to see the vampire's face, but she did. In 1941, when she meets the revived Armand Tesla, she gives no indication that she has seen him before. So what's going on? Incredibly, Bela Lugosi's other two vampire movies have the same problem. In the 1931 Dracula, Renfield clearly sees the face of the coach driver who will take him to Castle Dracula, but when he finally meets his host, he has no indication at all that he has seen this man before. Likewise, in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, Wilbur Gray, played by Luke Costello, sees Count Dracula in McDougal's House of Horrors and later meets him as Dr. Lejos and gives no indication that he's seen him before, except when Dr. Lejos first comes down the stairs, Costello does a little pantomime schicks as if to say, what's going on here? Does this guy look familiar or not? And also to give Costello his credit, he never gets to see the lower part of Dracula's face. Dracula always keeps his cape over his face. Supposedly that's how the film gets around that problem. In Return of the Vampire, I don't know, but there may be editing of the vampire. Things may have changed during filming. One day may have had to work around Bela Lugosi. When Lugosi filmed the movie in August 1943, he was appearing on stage in Los Angeles in Arsenic and Old Lace. He actually brought the whole production crew to a matinee, which would have been on the weekend. The, week, the matinees were on Saturday and Sunday. But he would not have wanted to linger around the studio long. He didn't, may not have shown up particularly early. And by some accounts, he was, one account, he was tired and, and went to sleep in his coffin during the filming. I, I take that with a grain of salt. There's always, always stories of Bela Lugosi sleeping in his coffin at work. And uh, I don't know if that ever really happened. Another thing is that Lugosi may have been hurting because he was working hard and his back may have been acting up. His sciatica may have been acting up. There's a scene with Andreas earliest in the film when Armand Tesla rises from his coffin and says to Andreas, tell me what happened during the hours of, of light. And as Andreas is talking to him, Bela Lugosi gets out of the coffin ever so daintily. Like he didn't want to put any pressure on his leg or whatever, which would be what would happen with sciatica. It's not a, not a powerful moment for him. Lugosi could get out of a coffin quite well, even in advanced age. In Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, when he was 65, he gets out of the coffin in McDougal's House of Horrors, one leg at a time, lifts himself up. In 1951, at age 69, Lugosi is in, in a coffin in Mother Riley Meets the Vampire, swings both legs over at the same time and lifts him out in one motion. And I gotta say, I'm, I'm 67, midway between uh, Lugosi at 65 and Lugosi at 69, and I couldn't do either one of those with the grace that he does. Uh, there are some stills in the movie that show the vampire in his coffin with, with Andreas the werewolf near him and them communing. Those scenes are not in the movie. Uh, Lugosi is kept in the shadows for as long as they can, almost for the first half of the film. If you look at the publicity stills and compare them to what's in the movie, you'll see two capes. One cape has a collar 
a stand-up collar that reaches to the lower part of the ear, and one cape has a collar that is so high it covers the ear. Lugosi doesn't wear that high, high collar cape in the movie, but it does appear, I think, they're putting an, an extra or a stand-in in there so that they, they can have the vampire without having Lugosi. And if we go through the early movie when the vampire does appear, he's always in shadow or in silhouette. We see his mirror reflection, which of course is not a mirror reflection, or we see him from behind with the very high collar cape. They were working around Lugosi. The first time we see Lugosi, it's not him, the actor himself. It's a, a drawing of him that appears in a book that Armand Tesla wrote during life. When Lugosi's body is... Uh, Revived, he digs himself out of the ground. The first time that we see a vampire on screen digging himself out of his grave, we get to see a hand, which, by the way, is definitely not Lugosi's hand, but we don't see Lugosi. Even in Lugosi's first big scene of the movie, when he re-ensnares Andreas Obrey and converts him to a werewolf, uh, there is no time when both of them are shown on screen at the first time. We'll see uh, the vampire from behind, but it may not be Lugosi. I don't think it is. I think they edited those moments together. Well, whatever distance Lugosi keeps during the uh, early part of the film is more than a made-up for in the death of the vampire, which is probably the most intimate vampire death up until then. In the movie, Andreas regains his soul when he finds a crucifix and he confronts the vampire. And as he's waving the vampire away with the crucifix, the bombs drop. This movie takes place during World War II when the Nazi bombings are over Europe. Lugosi is buried on rubble, and Andreas drags the unconscious vampire into the sunlight. But can bombs affect the vampire? I think the question is, can bombs affect a vampire who is under the influence of a cross? And I will propose to you that the reason the vampires so fear crosses and stay away from them is that the cross traps them in the physical world where they are as vulnerable as anyone else. If we look at the vampire movies and say, why do vampires fear crosses? In the Universal uh, series, that question is asked once of Dr. Laszlo in uh, Son of Dracula, and he's not very helpful. He just says it would take too long to explain why they fear it, but they do. Well, that's not very clear, but uh, we, so I'm postulating that's why they fear it. They become as mortal as you and I do. So Andreas drags him out of the crypt and leaves him to the mercy of the sun. But that's not good enough. He finds a spike and drives it through the vampire's heart. If you want to see a vampire get staked in the movies, this is as good as it gets until uh, more than a decade later. For instance, in Return of the Vampire, when Jenny Blake is staked in her coffin, that's quite explicit. And not only is it explicit, but for that one moment when the stake goes in and the blood splurts out, the black and white movie becomes color for about a second. Easy to miss. Really gripping, and I won't say gripping, a really shocking moment that that does that. The staked vampire then basically dissolves in the sun. The gooeyest vampire death up until then. And not only is what's on screen rather, rather explicit, the uh, publicity shots that Columbia released to show how they did it with a wax mass of Lugosi all over a uh, skeleton are rather ghoulish. So the movie was pushing the envelope there. Again, we have to wait over a decade to see a messier vampire death, and that would be, well, for instance, Return of Dracula again, when Francis Lederer falls on a spike, and it's, that, that gets kind of gooey. Uh, to give Universal some credit, they had been, uh, with Son of Dracula and House of Frankenstein, the uh, death of the vampire is shown as a, a body dissolves to a bone, rather elegantly done. But in terms of the vampire's death, in terms of the vampire digging himself out of his grave, 
the fear of the child, this on-screen staking of the vampire. Uh, Return of the Vampire is pushing the envelope as to what you could get away with in 1943. Pushing the envelope and originality are not what this movie is noted for. It is noted for plagiarism of the vampire. If you go to the trusted movie site and the internet movie database, imdb.com, it says about Return of the Vampire, Columbia Pictures intended Return of the Vampire as a direct sequel to Dracula. But when Universal threatened a plagiarism suit, Columbia changed the names of the characters to avoid any connection with Dracula. It also held back its release for two months so as not to compete with Lon Chaney Jr.'s son of Dracula. There's a lot of truth in here. There, there are other story, other versions of this, but there's a lot of truth in here. And the official release date of Son of Dracula was November 5th, 1943. And Return of the Vampire was only six days later, November 11th, 1943. It's hard to uh, find a showing of Return of the Vampire before the Christmas season of 1943-44. So it's, it's quite possible that, that IMBD has it quite right. And you can see why Universal might be a little ticked. In early 1943, a Bela Lugosi monster confronted a werewolf with a damsel in distress in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. A few months later, in 1943, a Bela Lugosi monster with a werewolf and a damsel in distress is appearing in Return of the Vampire. Some of the early publicity shots of, of Columbia's werewolf for Return of the Vampire look an awful lot like... Uh, Lon Chaney as the Wolfman in the Universal movies. They backed off on that. They changed the werewolf's costume a bit. But uh, that's where they were going with that. If there was a plagiarism accusation to be made from Universal to Columbia, it would go from Nat Blumberg, the co-president of Universal, to Harry Kahn, the president of Columbia Pictures. They knew each other. Here's a photo of the two of them together at, at some industry meeting. And Harry Kahn was not a man to be trifled with. My favorite quote from Harry Kahn is, I don't get ulcers, I give ulcers. So you wouldn't be making phone calls and threats to Harry Kahn unless you had your ducks in a row. So I presume that Nate Bloomberg, if he ever contemplated that call, called a council of war to see what their position was. And so I'm going to reenact that here. So you all are associate producers, corporate lawyers, uh, agents, hangers-on, the Young Turks looking to get ahead, the Greybeards hoping to get out of it alive, and you've hired me to point out the case to be made for plagiarism by Return of the Vampire. Well, let's see what Return of the Vampire takes from Dracula. Return of the Vampire is a 69-minute film. The first 14 minutes are basically a summation of the plot of Dracula. In both movies, there are female victims, who are fall prey to a strange anemia, such as the flower girl in Dracula and Lucy in Dracula, and young Nikki Saunders in Return of the Vampire and Miss Norcott in uh, Return of the Vampire. Some of those anemic victims wind up at the sanitariums. Their symptoms utterly confuse the doctors. So Dr. Seward in Dracula calls in his colleague, Dr. Van Helsing, and Lady Jane Ainsley calls in her one-time mentor, Walter Saunders, in Return of the Vampire. Both pairs become vampire hunters. Uh, Van Helsing and Seward go off to hunt vampires in Carfax Abbey, and Lady Jane Ainsley and Walter Saunders go off to cemeteries looking for the, the bodies of the, of the vampires. And they find them in their coffins where they stake them. Stepping outside the prologue of Return of the Vampire, both vampires, Dracula and Marmon Tesla, have manic depressive 
assistants, slaves, familiars, whatever you want to call them, who must be restrained. Those uh, two slaves are never happier when, than when their master returns to them. And in those scenes when the vampire comes to their slave, the dialogue is the same. Master, you've come back. Late in both movies, there's a scene where the vampire, thinking himself triumphant, confronts the vampire killer. Both cases, the vampire killer warns him off. Van Helsing says, something more powerful than Wolfbane. Lady Jane Ainsley says, something stronger than even you. And that stronger something, of course, is the crucifix, which terrifies the vampire when he sees it, and he makes a hasty retreat. He may have been defeated there, but that does not stop him from abducting the leading lady. And the climax of the movie, which in both cases, the vampire's plans are foiled by his assistant. In Dracula, Renfield is so devoted that his master that he innocently leads the vampire killers to his hiding place. And in Return of the Vampire, uh, Andreas turns rebel and actually confronts his, his master with a, a crucifix. There are precious few movies of the 1930s, or, or even now, or any, any time in history, where a, an actor steps out of character and addresses directly the audience. Two of them are Return of the Vampire, when Sir Frederick Fleet looks at the audience and says, do you people believe in this? And in the lost epilogue to Dracula, when Edward Van Sloan, the actor who played Van Helsing, steps out and gives the curtain speech that was so familiar to uh, Dracula performances, which ends in a line, there are such things. The borrowing isn't over. Return of the Vampire borrows from Dracula's daughter. Borrows a lot from Dracula's daughter. Both movies start with the same scene. A Scotland Yard police commissioner is arresting the vampire hunter. In Dracula's Daughter, it is Sir Basil Humphreys arresting Dr. Van Helsing. And in Return of the Vampire, it is Frederick Fleet arresting Lady Jane Ainsley. The subtle similarity here is that these are, these are not inspectors, they are commissioners. Crimes of monsters in London rarely rise above the inspector level. Those inspectors might be played by uh, Lionel Atwell in such films that he was Inspector Newman in Re Mark of the Vampire, Inspector Krug in Son of Frankenstein, Inspector Arntz in House of Frankenstein, Inspector Holtz in House of Dracula. Or they might be played by Dennis Hoey, who was Inspector Owen in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, Inspector Pierce in She-Wolf of London, and Inspector Lestrade in Sherlock Holmes movies, which are not horror movies, but they're sort of first cousins to them. There's only two police commissioners in the monster movies. Commissioner Basil Humphrey, played by Gilbert Emery in Dracula's Daughter, and Commissioner Sir Frederick Fleet, played by Miles Mander in Return of the Vampire. Well, a movie may start with an arrest, but eventually the vampire hunter and the police commissioner join forces to track down the, the vampire. In uh, Dracula's Daughter, they go all the way to Transylvania, and in uh, Return of the Vampire, they go to the cemeteries again looking for the vampire. They find him, but in both cases, further effort is unnecessary because the vampire has been destroyed by his familiar. In Dracula's Daughter, Xander is, feels jilted by Countess Zaleska and shoots her with an arrow right through the heart. And of course, we've seen Andreas, who was also jilted in a sense, staking his master Armand Tesla. In both movies, there are comic relief provided by some frightened civil services. There are the reinterment team in Return of the Vampire and the London police in Dracula's Daughter. And if they look familiar, it's two of the characters are played by the same actor, comedian Billy Bevan. And their dialogue is rather similar. In uh, Dracula's Daughter, Billy Bevan is so scared that his partner tells him England expects every man to do his duty. 
in uh, Return of the Vampire, Billy Bevan's character has now a bit more fortitude, and he tells his partner the king expects every man to do his duty. Throughout the movie, there are there is dialogue which is parallel to being almost similar. Vampires get a bit poetic in this movie. Armand Tesla tells the police there are many strange things in the world. Vampires may be one of them. Countess Zaleska says there's more in heaven and earth than dreamt of in your psychiatry. That's a kind of a parallel case. Here's almost an exact ripoff case. In uh, Dracula's Daughter, Sir Basil Humphrey says it's utterly mad. Van Helsing said mad or unbelievable. And Humphrey says, oh, well, let's say unbelievable. In Return of the Vampire, Sir Frederick Fleet says, this is simply the most fantastic thing I have ever read. Fantastic or unbelievable? Oh, I'm not going to haggle phrases with you. No surprise that both movies, as many vampire movies do, have comatose women victims who are in the hospital. And let's see their last scenes. In Dracula's Daughter, Lily says, that light hurts my eyes. Dr. Garth says, it's hard to keep your eyes open with that light on them, isn't it? In Return of the Vampire, Miss Norcott says, that light my eyes. And uh, Walter Saunders says, don't close your eyes. Just keep looking at me as long as you can. You're hurting me. The operative words, light hurts eyes, light hurts eyes, are in both scenes. Both movies have a ring, which is given some prominence early in the movie, and then just disappears from the plot. In Dracula's Daughter, it is the large ring that Countess Zaleska uses to seduce her victims. And in Mark of the Vampire, it is a ring that importance is attached to it. It passes from the vampire to the hand of one of the reinterment team, to Lady Ainsley, and then the vampire steals it back. And then both rings disappear from the plot rather early in the movie. We never get a really good look at, at Tesla's ring, but here's a close-up of it. But wait a minute, this is not the ring. This is a wall hanging in Countess Zaleska's apartment. I may be stretching the comparisons by bringing that in, but there's one comparison that's coldly obvious. If you want to see a vampire in a coffin with a stake in his heart in 1930s and 40s movies, you have two choices. You have Dracula's Daughter, then you have Return of the Vampire. Uh, House of Frankenstein comes close, but that stake is in the heart of a skeleton. So these are the only two movies that do it. The similarities abound between these two movies. There's plagiarism. There must be a plagiarist. And we may be looking at what I call payback of the vampire. Let's see who made this movie. Directed by Lou Landers. I'm going to put him to the side for a moment. Screenplay by Griffin J. I'm going to put him to the side for the moment. And then there's a very curious credit line. The movie is based on an idea by Kurt Newman. Kurt Newman, at the time, was a uh, middle-aged uh, screenwriter, director, etc. You'll not find many credit lines like that. You might find something based on the characters created by Bram Stoker or based on the works of Mary Shelley. But you're not going to find a, a living screenwriter with a credit based on an idea by. So let's look at Kurt Newman. We all know Kurt Newman from his most famous film. In 1958, he directed The Fly, but he did some screenwriting as well. And he has 13 screenwriting credits. And two of them are 1936, Dracula's Daughter, he wrote a treatment. 1943, he had a based on a idea by a credit for Return of the Vampire. And if we look at Dracula's Daughter, the writing credits get rather confused. There's more than a half dozen men mentioned as contributing to the uh, screenplay. We know the screenplay went through one cycle after another. And there have been not one but two books that have tried to decipher this. One is from Philip Riley's Unmade Films series. He has one that for Dracula's Daughter. The script contributions that were not used. And then there's the latest of the scripts from the Crypt series with Tom Weaver, which has one on Dracula's Daughter. 
in there we can find Kurt Newman's contribution. He wrote, It is my intention to write in Renfield through the entire last part of the story. We had the feeling that Renfield will fall back on, into his old character. He finally does so, but at the side of the vampire in the coffin. The side of the vampire in the coffin. That's an image we see in Dracula with Renfield and in Return of the Vampire with Andreas at Armand Tesla's coffin. So what was Kurt Newman's idea? It might be that when Dracula chokes Renfield at the close of Dracula and throws him down the stairs, he did not die. He survived and would live in torment. And he comes back in Return of the Vampire in the character of Andreas Aubrey, played by Matt Willis. I've shown you the opportunity and the means how this plagiarism might have been done, but what about the motive? Why did people do this? Well, let's look at Kurt Newman. Through 1935, he directed 16 films at Universal, including Secret of the Blue Room with Lionel Atwell. 1936 and onward, he, do, he would direct 50 more films in his life, none for Universal. Lou Landers, who directed the, uh, Return of the Vampire. Through 1935, as Louis Freelander, he directed nine films at Universal, including the Lugosi Karloff's co-star, The Raven. From 1936 onward, as Lou Landers, he had a very prolific career, directing more than 100 films, none for Universal. Neither man worked for Universal after 1936. 1936 was the year that the Lemley family lost control of Universal and Standard Capital Corporation took over. And there was a house cleaning. And film historians liked to joke that they found dead people on the payroll, they found a lot of hangers-on. Yeah, maybe, but they also got rid of some filmmakers who were, who were working hard, and among them were Kurt Newman and Lou Landers, who may have had a grudge against Universal. There's another man involved, and that is Griffin Jay, who wrote the screenplay. From 1940 through 43, he wrote 11 scripts for Universal, including the first three Karis the Mummy movies and the first Ape Girl movie. And then he would never work for Universal again. So did he have a break with Universal and out of revenge borrow a lot from the, their Dracula movies? Or did he do a freelance job at Universal that ticked Universal off because it was too similar to their movies and be fired and never to work again? I don't know. That's for another researcher to look into. There may be another victim of this, and that's Battle Lugosi. 1931 through 36, he made seven movies for Universal, including Dracula, uh, The Black Cat, and The Raven. When horror movies came back from 1939 through 43, he appears in eight Universal movies, including Son of Frankenstein, Ghost of Frankenstein, and Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. And after 1943, and Universal made lots of monster movies in 1944 and 45 that Lugosi could have had a role in, he would not be in them. And he works for Universal only one more time, and that is five years later in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. And by some accounts, he got that role by the skin of his teeth. So again, maybe there was some hard feelings that he was starring in a film that undermined Universal's plans. Uh, whenever L Universal thought about making a horror movie, they had to contend with Bela Lugosi, who was not working for them. That's in Son of Dracula and Return of the Vampire. And it happened in 1935 in Dracula's Daughter and Mark of the Vampire, made with Lugosi at MGM. And I'll just walk you through that history quickly. In 1934, July 1934, Walter Winchell ran in his column that John Boliston has done a sequel to be named Dracula's Daughter. September 1934, Luella Parsons writes that an actress named Majari Bojari will play in Dracula's Daughter. Well, no surprise that when 
January 1935 ran a roll around. There was a vampire movie with a vampire's daughter in it being filmed in Hollywood. But guess what? It's not Dracula's daughter. Dracula's daughter was going through that endless stage of re- uh, rewrites. The movie was Walk of the Vampire with Bela Lugosi at MGM. And by some accounts, though I don't believe them, Universal was rattling the cage complaining about this. And, but if they did, MGM can say, hey, we're remaking London at the Midnight. It's the same movie. You have no case. And Universal might come back and say, yeah, maybe we haven't got a case in there. But God, there's no two movies that love cobwebs so much that they appear so much in the movie. And not only in the movie, in the publicity for the movie, as Dracula and Mark of the Vampire. The two leading ladies in the movies are almost interchangeable. The movies have the same director. And by the way, you have the same actor playing the innkeeper. You have the, the vampire women, uh, you gave them a new hairdo, gave her a new hairdo in Mark of the Vampire, but you didn't do a thing to the costumes that we developed in Dracula. And by the way, you had the same vampire. So th- was there some hard feelings against Lugosi for that? I don't know, but it might explain some of the harsh treatment that he suffered at Universal's hands. Now I must change topics a bit. Let's talk about the saga of the vampire. I am not here because of any one actor or any one movie. I am here today because when I started watching the old Universal movies, they kind of fit together. They were sagas of multi-film sagas of the stories of the monsters, and I found that fascinating to sort them out. For instance, the Frankenstein monster. He's created the Frankenstein and rejected by his creator. In Bride of Frankenstein, he's rejected again by his creator, and by the way, by his bride. In Son of Frankenstein, he's rejected by a brother, but he does make a friend in Igor. In Ghost of Frankenstein, yet another brother has no time for him, rejects him, but but thanks to a brain transplant, the monster and Igor become one, a poetic end. In The Wolfman, Lawrence Talbot returns home and finds a rather distant father and a dead brother. In his next three incarnations, he will encounter the comatose monster and a doctor who wants to revive him. These are stand-ins for the dead brother and the father who, if he could, would bring the brother back to life. And finally, when Lawrence Talbot is cured and released, he has a price to pay. The Wolfman has killed countless victims, but Lawrence Talbot is forced to kill the doctor that cured him, and he starts the fire that finally destroys the monster. The price of his soul is to resolve his problems with his father and his brother in a very horrific way. Karis the Mummy series is more sequential, the, in the mummy's hand, archaeologists come, steal away his princess and Anka, and leave him for dead. He follows them to the new world and kills them in the mummy's tomb. In the mummy's ghost, he f- seeks to be reunited with Anka. He almost succeeds, but he comes back in the mummy's curse. And at the end of that movie, their mummies, are, uh, both of them, are carted away to the fictitious Scripps Museum in New York, where supposedly they reside to this day. But I can't make a saga for every monster. I can't make a saga for the Invisible Man. I can't tie those movies together in a common theme. And Dracula, the monster that started it all for Universal. I can't tie those together. There is no Dracula saga within the Universal. But there is a saga if we put Return of the Vampire between Dracula and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. How can I do that? Well, first of all, they have the same vampire. Bela Lugosi plays the vampire in those three movies. And in each movie... The vampire's opening scene is the, with the man he will make his slave. It's Dracula and uh, Renfield and Dracula. It is Armand Tesla and Andreas in Return of the Vampire. 
and it is Dracula and the Frankenstein's monster, and also with Wilbur Gray, who will become, who he, Dracula has his way, will become one in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. In all three movies, the vampire must contend with a manic depressive werewolf. Now, is, is Renfield a werewolf? We are told that he howls like a wolf at night, and each night something snaps the, the bars on his cell so that he can escape. I've always assumed it was Dracula, but maybe Renfield became a werewolf and snapped them himself. Anyway, the manic depressive werewolf starts as Renfield, becomes Andreas, who, who rebels, and finally becomes a crusader when the werewolf is, play, is Lawrence Talbot, played by Lon Chaney Jr. We know how the saga of Dracula and Renfield begins. Uh, it begins on the stairs of Castle Dracula, and it ends on the stairs of Carfax Abbey when Dracula chokes Renfield and throws him down the stairs. And Renfield's last words are, I can't die with all those lives on my conscience, all that blood on my hands. Well, what if he survived and he had to, he had to live on thinking about that? That becomes Matt Willis's portrayal of Andreas Obrey, who is certainly one of the most tormented characters in, in 1930s and 40s horror films. And we can find plenty of parallel scenes in the two movies between Dracula and Return of the Vampire with the, slave, the vampire slave. For instance, this one shows them both kneeling, at the, almost praying to their masters. Well, I may have to do a little footwork to convince you that, that Renfield has morphed into Matt Willis, this is uh, Andreas, but I don't think I do for uh, the Wolfman and Andreas because he was fashioned after him. His transformation scene is basically a ripoff about that. And out of makeup, Matt Willis and Lon Chaney have a something of a physical resemblance. That, uh, some authors have made a lot of that, but it's, but it's, you, know, it's, it, you can decide for yourself. They, they, they have the same on-screen persona, and they're, both their werewolves are, are highly tragic figures. So when Lawrence Talbot picks up the mantle from Andreas, when the vampire that was destroyed in Return of the Vampire comes back in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, the werewolf, now an immortal himself, comes back to fight him. And what Lawrence Talbot brings to Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is a drive, a compulsion, an obsession with destroying Dracula. And that's never explained where he got that from. And he finally confronts Dracula at the uh, masquerade ball. And the only time Lawrence Talbot and Dracula exchange dialogue is there. And Lawrence Talbot says, so, we meet again, Count Dracula. Well, if you watch the Universal films, they never really met. Uh, but, but, so, but if you put Return of the Vampire in there, they know each other well. And that leads to the final confrontation where the Wolfman and Dracula battle and they both fall to their deaths, never seen again, uh, off the balcony of the castle on the island near La Mirada, Florida. If we look at modern Gothic fiction, a lot of it is based on the, a natural animosity between vampire and werewolf. And I include in that the Underworld franchise, the Twilight franchise, the television Vampire Diaries, the latest round of bestsellers on werewolves, the novels of Glenn Duncan, and even the art of the, of the Gothic, starting with uh, Frank Frazetta uh, in the 1960s or 70s, and up to some more modern stuff. Either one of these might be a scene from Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And it all goes back to the rivalry of vampire and werewolf that drives so much of modern Gothic fiction all goes back to the tr the, the tri trilogy of Dracula and his werewolf slave 
who becomes a rebel, who becomes a crusader in Dracula, Return of the Vampire, and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. So, I've made my case for making that a trilogy, and the argument against the case is that it, they are not all from the same studio, that Columbia came in and tried to take over the Dracula franchise, they backed off from that, but they left nothing there for us to imagine that they're all unified and unified by Bela Lugosi and the vampire's struggle with the werewolf. through the night and you will never find where her body rests. Like I said at the top of the show, Frank is the man behind Cult Movies Press. He's got a handful of excellent books. I mean, he's one of my favorite monster kid writers. I mean, when it comes to the culture, uh, the fandom of being a monster kid, Frank nails it. And his new book, A Werewolf Remembers, highly recommended. Cultmoviespress.com. Follow the link in the show notes. Frank, thanks for doing this. You know, why don't we get you on the show outside of Monster Bash. We'll do a Skype thing. We'll pick a movie to talk about. Let's make it happen, man. Will everyone in the theater hold on family to his seat, please? Vincent Price. What unearthly horror did that girl gaze upon? What manner of incredible thing walked beneath that hood? It would be unfair at this time to show you any more of what went on in that laboratory where a man actually dared to play God. So fantastic words can't begin to describe it. You must see it with your own eyes to believe it when the fly comes your way. Like any other fly I've ever seen. No! 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 Please me, look at the fly. I've killed Andre. Please help me. Call the police and. The charge can only be murder. There were no mistresses. I had no lovers. Why did you kill him? God, don't let it get out. Inspector, Inspector, it's in the garden. Come quickly. As God is my witness, I saw the thing. It's unbelievable. I shall never forget that scream as long as I live. The fly's on its way. Watch out for it. It's far beyond anything your mind could ever conceive. From the depths of doom comes the most fearful monster of the ages to strike with paralyzing terror the despoilers of ancient tombs. Here is new horror, 
by the master of menace, Lon Chaney, as the mummy, with Dick Foran, John Hubbard, Ellis Knox, George Zuko, Wallace Ford, Turon Bay, in The Mummy's Tomb. A creature that's been alive for over 3,000 years is in this town, and it's brought death with it. We've got to run it down. It's getting towards the end, man. Toward the end of the bash. Don't say it's over. I don't want it to be over, man. I don't think we have any control over it, though. It's just, it's, it, time just keeps, yeah, you know, it's, it keeps on slipping, that, slipping, slipping. Something like that. Don't keep going. I'm not paying for the rights for that song. <laughs> uh, you know, we had a few minutes of downtime. I thought I'd, I'd corner Scott. I asked him what he was doing when he was done eating. Nothing. It's like, no, you're recording. And I, I want to hear what you thought of the Return of the Vampire. You'd never seen it before. I had never seen Return of the Vampire. This was the first viewing. It was one of the first things I did here at the Bash. And loved it. Okay, good. <laughs> we can still be friends. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that, and I also really enjoyed the uh, the talk afterwards. Frank's awesome. He were you? You were there last night for the new wine, weren't you? Yes, I was. So you saw he won an award. He won the the, the Forey. Yeah. Well-deserved. Uh, I'm a big fan of what he's written. Uh, I've got his three other books. This one, um, is the, the Wolfman one, is, or the Werewolf one is great. So, so kudos to him. But his talk on Return of the Vampire. Well, before we get away from the foray, his acceptance speech was amazing. And I saw him this morning on the way down, and I congratulated him. And he said, thanks. And, and I asked him, I was like, was that, was that real? Did you know I had a time? He's like, no, that's the story I told totally true and his wife's nodding behind him <laughs> did you record it i should have yeah for for those at home um he actually got a call after he had gone to sleep to come down to win to receive his award yeah um he said what did he say uh i got up and came down for the they knew exactly what to say to get me to come down that somebody wanted to buy one of your books yes <laughs> <laughs> So he came down and he got his award and and good for him. Yeah, good that was him. that was awesome. You know, you know what he said to me after I, the whole. He said, "Yours is coming too soon, buddy." And I said, "Dude, I've got so much more work to do to catch up with what you guys do here, <laughs> man." <laughs> anyway, uh, he did a talk on the return of the vampire, and you may have already heard it, listeners, or you are going to hear it. Uh, so either you love it or you're about to love it. Yes, it's it's a really good good talk, and uh, he. He's just great. I mean, he came up to the room to do a special recording. Um, just so it's it's going to sound awesome, or it already sounded awesome. But the film itself, Scott had never seen it. Compare it to like the first Dracula film, the Bela Lugosi Dracula. I liked this better than the first Dracula film. Oh, honestly, yeah. it is more dynamic, and also uh, Lugosi's dialed it back a little bit. Yeah. So what? Dracula was what thirty one. Thirty one. Return of the Vampire is what early forties. Yep. So he's he's got, I don't know, more time in more front of experience. Uh, yeah, more experience yeah. in Hollywood. I mean, he'd yeah. been a stage actor for years, but yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Plus, I kind of like the idea of vampires in World War II mixing. That's the coolest part. Yep. You know, oh, oh, I love that. I'm glad you said that. I love that. 
I don't know. Is this something that we don't we see in other stories that with what happened in World War II with the bombings and the disruption of the land and the geography and everything else, buildings coming down and obviously cemeteries are going to be affected by that. Yep. Have there been many stories or movies that come out of monsters being freed from that or, or, or woven into that narrative? I, I don't know. I mean, this one comes to mind now and Godzilla comes to mind, even though it wasn't actually in the war. It was right. testing for the war. Right. It's, it's awesome. And this film, the way the vampire is destroyed, you see it on screen. Mm-hmm. And for its time, it's kind of mind-blowing. It kind of rivals Hammer. It, it really does, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it feels Hammer. Compared to especially uh, the, the earlier Dracula films that they mm-hmm. did. It feels like, um, is it an equator mass experiment, the first one, where they kind of melt the guy? Where they have that one shot where a part of him is melting down in the hospital room? I believe so. And it just happens yeah, it's, for yeah. a second. It's, for, it's real quick. Mm-hmm. But I was more thinking of uh, Christopher Lee. Yeah. In... in Dracula when he gets the sunlight on him. It, it, this reminded me of that. Yeah, and I, I liked it a lot, and the way they did it was pretty amazing. Um, but the, yeah, the World War II setting is great. I, I just I love that, and um, I, I'm kind of glad that Universal got all like, well, wait a minute, that's our story, because then it forced them to do some different things, like having the female vampire killer hunter type. Lady Jane Ainsley is one of my absolute favorite characters. Oh, she's awesome in this film. I, I love her in, I mean, if I were to make a list, and I, I kind of am, of like my top 100 classic horror characters, she's right in there. She deserves more stories, more people looking at her. Just, she's fantastic. Now, I want to see an extended universe with her going off and hunting other vampires yeah. or maybe other monsters. Yeah, I, I think that's something we need to do. Because we have nothing else That's to true. do. We are so looking for projects right now. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, one of the other things I liked, and it's something that uh, uh, was in the talk as well, which may sound morbid, but I really liked the scene where the vampire attacked the kids. It was unnerving. It's not morbid. I mean, I mean, what well, it is. Right. <laughs> uh, no, it's it's an effective scene. It's very effective. And, and the little girl, the actress that's, that's the girl, is amazing. She sells the fear there i mean that and, and i like the time frame jump i like that it starts like 30 almost 30 years well actually about 25 years or so yeah and then we get into world war ii and i like the time jump because i like the idea it's not nearly as much as like what we get in the Quatermass experiment where we or i'm sorry the Quatermass in the pit where we have the concept of deep time the martians have been there for millennia yeah. we still have like 25 years or so where the vampire has an opportunity to kind of plot what he's going to do. Yeah, he gets stuck by a stake, but then, you know, years later, he's still coming back to enact his revenge. And and that idea, too, the timeless revenge story, I really like. Well, this also showed another thing about vampires that, personally, I didn't know. Every time I've seen vampires in films, when they get staked, they usually die. Right. I never really thought of the idea that a vampire would get staked but if that stake is removed, they're up and at them. Oh, really? Yeah, because all the hammer ones usually, when they're staked, that's it. That's it. The the the, the body de- just decays immediately. Huh. Okay. Okay. Yeah. See, for me, it's always been if you take the stake out, they can get back up. Yeah. That I I it makes perfect sense, but I just didn't know that. Especially considering where some of this legend, some of the legends come from. You know, they. Mm-hmm. 
if you didn't st- originally it's you stake them just to pin them to the ground and then you cut them off cut their head off and everything like that i mean that's and that came from people thinking they they were real it would actually stake them into their coffins or whatever to keep them from getting up but no i've always liked that idea that if you move the stake out oh you know now if they get exposed to sunlight like the end of uh, this film and then he gets put into the shade does he come back <laughs> Oh no, it's overcast. Oh no, we went to Seattle. Um, <laughs> no, I, you know, I've seen it done a number, a number. I mean, when it comes to vampires, they're like certain things. They drink blood. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the time, they can't come out during the day. Uh, yeah, I mean, in the original novel, are you familiar with the original novel? I have never read it, no. In the original novel, he's walking around during the day. It's just he's in a weakened state at that point and can. I mean, I've heard, and I don't know if this is actually stated in the novel, but some people say that when he's in the sunlight, he's vulnerable to everything that anybody else would be vulnerable to. They say that in or okay, at least, okay, they did. In, in least uh, Frank made that point in the talk mm-hmm. because there's a scene near the end when the fight's going on and then a bombing happens, and the the way that his um, Andreas actually is able to take him out is because part of the church. Uh, roof gets taken off and sunlight hits him. And so Frank makes the point of, uh, you know, out in the sunlight, maybe they don't kill him. It just weakens them. Yeah. I, I think it's a great film and listeners, you got to see it. If you haven't seen it now, I have talked about it here on the show in the past. Is that housekeeping? we gotta hide all the bodies before housekeeping comes in (laughs) (laughs) so i have talked about the movie on the show in the past i don't remember how far back but it's been a while it's definitely something worth seeing scott loved it i love it and and also i want to say thank you to to frank for doing the talk and also uh, going the extra mile to help out monster kid radio um but another point that he made, which I find fascinating, and now I want to do this, is to watch Dracula, The Return of Dracula, and Abbott and Costello meet Dracula back-to-back. Meet Dracula, huh? Yeah, well, meet Frankenstein. Meet, meet Frankenstein. Yeah. I want to watch those back-to-back and see how well they would fit together as a continuous story. You know, we were talking before we started recording about the next bash that they're doing at that theater in Ohio. Yes, where Camp, they're going to be doing Canton, Ohio, and they're doing the entire Frankenstein run uh, from Frankenstein to Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, and I, I was saying it'd be kind of fun to watch those all in a row just to see. But now I'm thinking those three is probably an easier uh, film series to do because it's only three films, and I can put that much time aside to watch all three yeah. in, over a weekend. But I, I loved his his talk about that, and I can having seen all three of those films, a lot of the points he was making I can see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be fun to do. Now, that's not the only movie you saw for the first time here. You saw the first at least half, if not three quarters, of How to Make a Monster. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, it was outside, and it just got a little chilly for me. Yeah. What did you think of what you saw? What I saw, I really liked. Okay. Um, I, I actually got to the point. It, I was almost to the end because it was already in color. And oh, wow. yeah, okay. I got to the point where the um, the actors were taken back to the special effects guy's house. So it was just about to wrap up, but I just had to get back inside. Yeah. 
Plus, I was getting eaten alive by mosquitoes. Oh, man. I, I think it's a shame that that movie isn't more well-known or more... I mean, there must be some legal issues or something that's keeping it from being uh, a full release. I mean, that and um, Teenage Werewolf and Teenage Frankenstein. So it's not part of the same deal that Frankenstein and Werewolf have. Uh, that Susan Nicholson owns those two. And then the other half... Uh, owns How to Make a Monster, Blood of Dracula, which was going to be I was, which is basically I was a teenage vampire or Dracula, mm-hmm. any handful of others. It has been released on disc as a double feature with Blood of Dracula, which of the four in my mind is kind of the lesser of the four. It's got some interesting stuff, but yeah, I, I've seen I'm a teenage um, werewolf and Frankenstein before. I don't have them, but I've seen them. Yeah, I, and I like them a lot. I do too. Uh, and, and I like Teenage Frankenstein. I think that's my favorite of those two. It's unfortunate that people don't get a chance to see those legally, mm-hmm. you know, through an official release. How to Make a Monster kind of – it kind of meta, kind of takes you out. Yes. You know, in, in, in a fascinating way. And I've always appreciated it. Yeah, that – it is really interesting. I mean, I, I think the perfect you – know, you'd watch the two monster ones, the straight monster ones, and then watch this one because the, it's almost like a making of – but then it makes a dark turn. <laughs> but something goes horribly <laughs> wrong. <laughs> and it's it's an interesting commentary, I feel like. And I don't know if this was intentional. But it, it feels very, well, that's kind of what happened to Jack Pierce. Mm. You know, new studio heads came in and didn't think they needed the big makeup department anymore. Well, Jack Pierce didn't have access to the magic clay. Yeah. Well, he... They didn't think they needed monster movies anymore. Yeah. Yeah. There's a big stretch there. Universal. It's a shame. But no, it's it's really fascinating because of that. And I really enjoy that one too. It's it's a little bit more grounded in reality, even though there's spooky stuff happening than I mean, the other it two. It really is the first, until the murders start, it could also almost be seen as a documentary, like a behind the scenes of them making how to make uh, a teenage werewolf film or something. You know, especially when he's like walking through the set at the yeah. very beginning. He's like, oh, hey, buddy. Hey, guys. You know, oh, how about a werewolf on pirate ships? You know, just. Which, <laughs> which I want to see now. <laughs> yeah, I want to see that too. Why did that not happen? <laughs> yes. But I mean, you get even to the point where, you know, the, the kid gets to the set and the director sits and gives him, uh, okay, now you're going to do this. You're going to do that. And also now I want to see. Teenage Werewolf versus Teenage Frankenstein, a movie that they were look like they were making because both of them were there. <laughs> yeah, that never happened. It's unfortunate. You see the art, you see the post, uh, the pictures, the publicity yep. shots, but I would love to see those two go at it. Yep, me too. Having watched that and thinking back to I was a Teenage Werewolf, I almost feel like he was a better werewolf. And I, I don't know if that's blasphemous to say, but just the kind of, he felt more, he felt, he felt more. <laughs> He felt like Lugosi. He <laughs> felt more um, <laughs> spry. You know, like he if he jumped at you, it was in trouble. He felt more animalistic. Yeah, that's maybe that's it. That's it. No, nothing against Michael Landon. I mean, that was that's cool. And I mean, he was the first and mad props. But if I were to throw a werewolf against the teenage Frankenstein, I'd want Gary instead of Michael. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you need to see the end of it, I've got it on DVD. So I'll find a way to make sure you can see it if you want. Cool. I love that it goes to color at the end. And <laughs> I went inside very early, but at one point, somebody who was with our group looked out and said, wait a minute, is this movie in color? It's like, yeah, I love that. I mean, Teenage Frankenstein happens at the very end as well, but I love that it goes to color just for a second at the end. It was longer than a second. It's, it's like when they get oh, well, to- Well, in Teenage Frankenstein, it oh, goes yeah, color for a true, second. True, true. In this one, it, 
seem to be a lot longer because it's like when they get to his house, they're at the climax of the film. And you've got all the other masks in the yes. background. And obviously, you know, Paul Blaisdell didn't do this movie, but he has some Paul Blaisdell masks in the back. And, you know, he had done some American International. So, of course, they had access to it. And I just I love it so much just yes. to have all I, it. so I, meta. I, I want that room before the fire started. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So let's hope that Chris Mim never fires Mitch Gonzalez that way. Because <laughs> Mitch has made some pretty cool monsters as well but i want to see that movie <laughs> I, I want to see that movie badly and, and i bring it up because scott finally pulled the trigger he got himself where's keto nazi hunter i'm looking forward to watching it uh actually uh spent a good deal of time with the folks from the mimiverse podcast or mimiverse crew and um I told Chris, I said, I'm sick of Derek telling me how good where Skeeto Nazi Hunter is, and I'm just going to have to get it and watch it for myself. So uh, picked that up, got got it autographed. I'm looking forward to watching it. Well, will you let me know what you think of it when you do? Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, listeners, I love the Mimiverse movies. You should buy them all. There you, there you go. Yes, every single one. Don't make us put uh, special makeup on you to buy them. <laughs> That's a good way to end. Scott, thanks for doing this. Uh, thanks for being part of my Bash experience. It's not over yet. Uh, two o'clock, I've got a movie premiere of Joshua Kennedy's movie, Theseus and the Minotaur. Is that the official title? I, I think it is. Okay. Are you going to see that? Uh, maybe. I, I haven't decided yet. Or okay. maybe, uh, maybe go buy another Bumble. <laughs> That's right, the Rankin Bass folks are here. Yeah, and I bought me a Bumble. There you go. He's a monster. Full disclosure, there really wasn't a body in the hotel room when room service showed up. At least, not that I'm aware of. Scott, the Disney podcaster, might have had something going on, but that's between him, the mouse, and room service. So just saying. Scott is dear friend of the show, dear friend of mine, and he is also one of my co-hosts or the co-host with me over at 1951 Down Place, a podcast devoted to Hammer Films discussion, which is coming back soon. Uh, we are in post-production right now of the next episode, so stay tuned for that. He's also one of the high muckety mucks over at Disney Indiana with his wife, Tracy, at DisneyIndiana.com. And what the heck, why don't I play the promo for that right now? C-3PO. Loki. Mace Windu. Dr. Bruce Banner. Captain Rex. Venom. Princess Leia. Jean Grey. Darth Maul. Nick Fury. Grand Moff Tarkin. Captain America. Lando Calrissian. Cyclops. What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson. A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Come on, guys. You know this. Well, of course we do, Jessica. Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana Podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and LucasArts. We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer. Which includes movies, Imagineering, video games, and collectibles. You'll never know what we'll decide to talk about. So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana podcast on iTunes because now we've got a lot more to talk about. And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully. 
Fozzie Bear, Buzz Lightyear, Link Hogthrob, Doug, Janice, Merida, Pepe, Bruce, Ralph the Dog, Wally, Dr. The Disney Bunsen Indiana Podcast. Even after five years, we're still miles away from the nearest Main Street, USA. We're not listed on the map, but you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com. of the external jugular vein right side. Any blood? No, that's the strange part. No evidence of bleeding. This medallion, composed of horrors unimaginable, taints the secret heart of Sandra Harrison with the blood of Dracula and possesses the mad mind of Louise Lewis with dreams of limitless powers. I can release a destructive power in a human being that would make the split atom seem like a blessing. A woman overfull with fantasies of terror, stimulating young girls beyond any reasonable control, piercing the Earth's crust to make black magic with the blood of Dracula. Transforming a young girl's love into terrifying bloodlust. Symptoms are identical. Two incisions of the jugular vein. Was well, the killer human or animal? A Dracula. secret desire to destroy. Each of us would like to be able to become the other being, to know the master makeup artist's magic. How to make a monster. Broadway stellar performer Robert H. Harris brings to this theater the most terrifying of men, a man whose mind is distorted by hatred. I'll use the very monsters they mock to bring them to an end. This maniacal strength will linger in your arms and hands. And with it, you'll destroy your real enemies. Exactly as I instruct you. Pending autopsy findings, I would say that he was attacked from behind by someone with fiendish strength. So what do we have to do? Look for a monster? We're not talking about actors. We mean a real monster. Behind the scenes in Hollywood's wonderland of make-believe where pretty girls parade their pulchritude, terror stalks with the stealthy steps of death. And death following death permeates the very air you breathe with horror. Mr. Monster Maker of Maveland sells his talents to the devil. I have a great honor to bestow upon you. I intend to add you two to my collection. You want 
You won't? As real as I can get them. See the Master Monster Maker's Chamber of Horrors in color. How to Make a Monster. Here we are at the end of the show. I want to thank everybody for listening and participating in the show, whether you were in front of the mic or you're at the other end of the earphones. Thank you for being part of the Monster Kid Radio experience for me. It means a lot to me to have you along for the ride as I, you know, geek out on these monster movies. It's what I do. It's what you do. And if you want to talk about what you do, find us over at Facebook. We have a Facebook page and a Facebook group. If you're a Facebook user, please consider liking the page. If you are interested in joining the group, well, that's where the conversations happen with other Monster Kid Radio listeners between episodes or even while they listen. So check that out. Now, there's a link to that over on our website over at monsterkidradio.net. Here we also have our contact information. So if you want to call in and leave a voicemail like Steve or Tim did, you can call me at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. There's links to everything else that we have going on here at the show, as well as a way for you to subscribe to Monster Kid Radio. And I bring this up because there's been some difficulty with making iTunes and Liberated Syndication, the podcast hosts, work together. There were a couple of updates on both sides. And in doing so, the link kind of got broken. I thought I fixed it, but I'm still hearing reports that it's not been corrected, at least as of this afternoon. And I'm recording this on Wednesday. Now, I think I've got everything worked out. But if you are listening to the show and you normally subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes, you may need to unsubscribe and then resubscribe to the show to make everything work. Of course, you can download every episode of Monster Kid Radio direct from our bare bones behind the scenes website, which is at monsterkidradio.libsyn, that's L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. So there's always a way for you to hear it even if iTunes isn't playing nice. But if iTunes is playing nice and you're an iTunes user, please consider giving us an honest review in the iTunes store. Okay, before I wrap up, a couple of announcements. I mentioned this on Facebook, but I know not all of you are on Facebook. Earlier this week, I've received confirmation that I'll be a panelist or a guest at two upcoming conventions. Now, I will be a guest or panelist at this year's H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival and Cthulhu Con here in Portland at the Hollywood Theater. It's happening October 6th, 7th, and eighth, I can't wait. I've been going to this convention, this festival, every year since I've been in Portland, save the first year that we were here because I was dumb and didn't know any better. But the Lovecraft Film Festival, it's an amazing time. A list of panels, events, films, that's coming soon. Go to hpfilmfestival.com, follow the link to the Portland event to keep up to date there. Now that's happening in October. Before that, in September, September 8th through the 10th, is the Rose City Comic Con. I go to this as well, but it's usually been as a fan, and I try to record a little bit. Now, last time around, I was a panelist on Sean Hode's panel. He did a panel about the monsters of the Cthulhu mythos. That was a blast, and I got hooked. So I submitted a panel suggestion, and I got confirmation that my panel has been chosen Saturday at 4.30 p.m. That's September 9th at the Rose City Comic Con. I will be moderating a panel called... Universal Unite with Monster Kid Radio. Basically, we're going to take a look at the Dark Universe, the Mummy film with Tom Cruise, talk about what Universal has in store for their upcoming shared cinematic universe. I'm going to be joined by panelist Chris McMillan. You've heard him on the show quite a bit. He's a good guy. Dominique Lamses. She's been on the show once, and we've recorded two other times. In fact, you're going to hear her later this month on the show. And then Jeff Dean. He's no stranger to podcasting, but he's not been on my show. He's been a co-host on the Kaiju cast over the 
the years. And one of these days, I'm going to get him here on the show to talk about Night of the Demon. We've been talking about it for years. It's got to happen. Anyway, the three of them and I are going to be talking about, well, the Universal Monster movies at a comic book convention. I can't wait. And filmmaker Christopher R. Mim, who you heard Scott and I talk about earlier, is going to donate at least one movie for me to give away as a prize at the panel. I'm trying to get some more prize material. It should be a lot of fun. If you're in the area, please look me up. I'll be the guy with a portable recorder and a Monster Kid Radio t-shirt. And one more thing, speaking of Dominique, she sent this to me and asked me to read it on the show, and I thought it was a fantastic idea. It's about a fellow monster kid by the name of Joseph S. Pulver Sr. Now, he's not been on the show here. He may have been on some panels I recorded years ago for Mail Order Zombie. I'm not sure, but he's a monster kid. He's a heck of an author, an authority on all things the king in yellow. He's a prominent member of the weird fiction community. In addition to being an author of weird fiction and poetry, he's a wonderful person who mentors and guides other writers and artists, often putting their needs before his own. Unfortunately... Joe's now in the hospital requiring surgery, and he and his wife are struggling to make ends meet with all the medical bills. Now, his wife has started a GoFundMe campaign to help allay the costs. If you find yourself able to donate to it, please consider it. Someone who's given so much to others deserves to ask for something in return when in need. If you've never read any of Joe's work, please consider picking some up. Like I said, he's the foremost scholar on Robert W. Chambers and The King in Yellow. Remember True Detective Season 1? There's a lot of it in there. And his King and Yellow Tales, which have been collected into one volume and are available through the Lovecraft Ezine, are a treat. And of special interest to Monster Kids is The Madness of Dr. Caligari, an anthology he edited full of stories that takes the 1920 film The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and turns it on its head. I want to thank Derek for reading this and to you listeners for, well, listening. And I hope you can find the means to help, or at the very least, you end up with some good books out of this. Dominique, thanks for sending that in. I'm going to read it a couple of times here on the show. Joe, he's a good guy. One of my absolute favorite memories from the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. And I feel kind of bad because I had a friend come in from out of town by the name of Mike Marisitz, who one of these days I'll get him on the show. Anyway, Mike was up in town for the Lovecraft Film Festival. I was there with another friend named Jason. We were hanging out. There was some downtime time to go get something to eat. They were there to spend time with me, and I got into a conversation with Joe. We talked about writing. We talked about fiction. We talked about what Lovecraft meant to each of us. Talked about his journey. He gave me some pointers on how to get my journey back on track when it comes to writing. Super cool guy, and it's unfortunate that this is happening to him. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes as well to the GoFundMe page. Okay, on that note, Let's wrap this up. Remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, I just realized I forgot to tell you what's happening next week here on the show. Dave, Doc Hallen's been killed. Doc Hallen? What happened? It's over at his place. you got to come now. Oh, wait a minute, Steve. Tell us what happened. Well, I'm trying to tell you. Now, this thing had killed the doc. Well, what was it? Stop with it, kid. But it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a mass that keeps getting bigger and bigger. It. Every one of you watching this screen, look out, because soon, very soon, the most horrifying monster menace ever conceived will be oozing into this theater.
teenagers see it first, like a falling star from outer space. Boy, that was close. Hey, come on, I want to see if I can find it. An old man finds it, touches it, and this is the shocking result. From then on, there's no stopping the blob as it spreads from town to town. It's indestructible. It's indescribable. Nothing can stop it. This town is in danger. How can it be stopped? Mob hysteria sweeps one city. Before long, the nation and then the world could fall before the blood-curdling threat of the Bob. Starring Steve McQueen and a cast of exciting young people. George McGowan from Collecting Classic Monsters, Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Award nominee, is coming here to talk about The Blob. Come back next week for that, or we'll send The Blob after you. Talk to everybody next week. My name's Derek M. Cook. Ciao.